I am Andrew Ron. I'm an accredited rural appraiser, and I am president of the Montana chapter of the ASFMRA and communications director for the Montana Farm and Ranch Brokers Association, the two top industry organizations in the state. I am also the proud creator of Montana LandSource, the industry standard for access to rural land listings and sales, and land market information and insights. There is no other more comprehensive resource for insider Montana land information than Montana LandSource. Go to www.mtlandsource.com. I am part of the Ranch Investor Podcast because I want to be part of the conversation with other top land experts on the future of the land market, land investment, land ownership, and management. I'm Coulter DeVries, owner of Ranch Investor Advisory and Brokerage Services. I'm an accredited land consultant with the Realtor Land Institute and proud member of ASFMRA. As a former commercial and ag banker, my main reason for doing this podcast is to simply gauge the market's appetite for crowdsourcing investment in a ranch real estate fund. This fund would allow you to hunt, fish, ride, camp, and recreate how you want while also enjoying the financial and portfolio benefits of investing in a large western ranch. For rural land enthusiasts who want to deepen their knowledge of the ranch real estate market, grow their portfolio, and be viewed as a trusted advisor, the Ranch Investor Podcast is the most downloaded and informative industry-specific content that intrigues while entertains. Curated by subject matter experts to give you immense benefit, because we believe your time is valuable. Andy. How do I sound? You sound good, Coulter. Uh, not, not too uh, overbearing. Better than I look. Well, that goes without saying. <laughs> we we got faces for radio here. <laughs> so we've been working on getting Gary in for quite a while now. Yeah, I'm very excited to have Gary Buchanan here, and uh, I'm going to go ahead and introduce him a little bit, but then I'm going to ask you to further introduce yourself. But so Gary Buchanan, longtime independent advisor here in Billings, Montana, but also a long history of, um, I guess you'd call it somewhat political history, but particularly of interest, the first Department of Commerce director for the state of Montana. I think that's pretty, pretty interesting. Uh, former chairman of the Montana Banking Board, um, served two, te- two terms of the Montana Board of Investments and was the chairman. And the list kind of goes on for there, on from there. Um, I'm particularly interested to have Gary in. He's such a lifelong uh, expert and uh, made a name for himself in the advisory of the equities market and whatnot. And this is the Ranch Investor Podcast, so I think there's a lot to talk about. And uh, I know, knowing you as I do, know you have a long list of clients who um, are farm and ranch. And um, I'm also guessing clients that, um, you know, just invest in land and I'm sure come to you and say, Gary, I want to, I want to buy a place. Um, I want to pull money out of my funds. Um, so I'm sure you've dealt with that a lot. So I think there's lots to talk about, lots of interesting information, um, about the parallels and the, and the departures of the land as an investment versus equities markets. How's that sound? That sounds fine. Thank you very is, much. Is that your why, Andy? Why did we bring Gary? <laughs> yeah, that's my why, anyway. <laughs> All right. Well, Gary, maybe you can give us your background and your why. Why did you come on today? Well, I came out number one because you asked me. <laughs> I'm glad we finally got it together. Um, I've been in, I started the investment business 44 years ago uh, with Merrill Lynch in Billings, and I've 
run a variety of companies. And 20 years ago, I started my own firm with my son and daughter and wife, Buchanan Capital Inc. And we're, uh, we're in some ways a traditional uh, broker, a financial advisor for individuals. We also do quite a bit of institutional work, uh, particularly in the bond world. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I bring that, I'm very interested in, in what you guys do. Andy, I followed your, your business for a while. And uh, so have at me. I would love to expound on, maybe not uh, profoundly, but anything you might ask. So. Well, I'm, I'm actually, Andy, I know we, we try to stay apolitical and mm-hmm. we didn't want to dive into it, but since we have someone running for the U.S. congressional seat here in our, our office, let's the, take advantage of it. The new congressional, the newly created, or I guess we could say it's back again. It went away for, what, 30 years? Almost, I think it was. Yeah, yeah. so yeah. for those of our out-of-state listeners, Montana until recently had only one congressional seat in the House of Representatives. Our population was that small and we've grown. So now we're back to two congressional seats. So it's a newly created uh, Eastern Montana district and Gary is running as an independent against the incumbent uh, Republican. So why am I doing it? Yes, uh, that was my question. <laughs> I guess I'm just not the best journalist in the world. So you say, why an independent? Gary? My midlife crisis was a Datsun 280Z. Uh, <laughs> now, I'm, I run an independent financial company along with my son, and I'm running as an independent, and I'll tell you why. It took me collecting 15,000 plus signatures to get here uh, to file as an independent. So I've met thousands of people in the last couple of months. I filed uh, as an independent, and I'll get to why that in a second, but uh, on the last day to file, and that was shortly after uh, our current representative voted against supporting Ukraine. And that was kind of the tipping point, and then a couple other bills to not support it. So if, if there was a tipping point, it was the uh, lack of support for Ukraine. I, I sincerely believe we're back in the Cold War uh, some of the guys at this table are too young to remember some of that, but uh, the Cold War ended with Reagan and Gorbachev, supposedly. Uh, it's interesting that Mitt Romney, a couple of presidential campaigns ago, was asked what's the most dangerous uh, part of the world, and he said Russia. And people laughed at him because they were thinking about all sorts of places, but Russia. But we have to win that war. Uh, it's going to take a while. It is the new Cold War. And we literally cannot let Ukraine fall uh, because that will make the world a lot more dangerous. So that's that's one thing. The other is I've been an independent politically, and thanks for allowing me to talk about politics. I was prepared to talk about the bond market. But, <laughs> we'll, get, we'll get there. Okay. Um, <laughs> I've been an independent my whole career. I've had the privilege of serving six different governors. Uh, I've served Republican governors and Democrat governors and some of those things that that, uh, Andy mentioned. Montanans and their politicians used to get along and they used to get things done. Uh, Now our citizenry gets along, but our politicians are tearing us apart. And I really think that the parties have become so overly partisan, uh, almost cruel to each other. And there have been no significant uh, bipartisan efforts in our state for a while. I'm very pleased the Senate had a bipartisan uh, bill passed today. But as I, I've probably met with a thousand 
couple, maybe 12, 1300 Montanans in the process of, of getting signatures to get on the ballot. And I hear more than anything that people are tired of party politics. Uh, when, when I discuss the eight lane highway down the middle of Montana politics, I hear good things from Republicans and Democrats. I'm very pleased because right now I've got Democrats saying I'm taking votes away from Democrats and I've got uh, Republicans saying I'm taking votes away from Republicans. That's, that's exactly where I want to be going into the November election. We had 428 people out collecting the 15,000 signatures and they're an energized group. They make a natural campaign for us. So right now I'm trying to keep my 428 signature gatherers uh, motivated. And I think we have a good chance. I think the next congressperson that gets elected will win by a plurality. And I think the winner of that race could win with 38 to 39%. Uh, we will not have a majority uh, election of that. I'll, I'll make sure of that. Uh, but I don't know who's gonna win. I, I'd love to get, I think 38% could win it in a three-way race, but. Well, I guess you're doing something right if you're making all sides a little bit mad and yeah. making all sides a little bit happy. I, mean, maybe I think so. The, I was, that's the recipe. I was really pleased that I heard from both parties about how much I'm stealing votes. <laughs> my my job is uh, is to appeal to the, you know, the largest sector of the Montana voter are independents. The largest sector in the country are independents, and they're the only two growing parts of politics because people have had it with party politics. Yeah, well, I'm excited about your campaign because I'm a proud independent, have been for a long, long time. Uh, don't have any love or loyalty for, for either of our political parties. And I am frustrated as a lifelong Montana, and I think in Montana is generally on the conservative side of things. And I think that's been uh, kind of a growing reputation, I guess. And for the first time in decades, we have a full red government in the state side. But for decades and decades and decades, we had divided government yeah. and people, you know, that was kind of characteristic of Montana politics is we would elect, for example, you know, a Democratic governor and, and have a Republican legislature or vice versa. And uh, I, I miss those days personally. One of the most productive legislatures I've ever been involved in was Ted Schwinden was governor and both the House and, and uh, Senate, Montana House and Senate were Republicans. We got more done with Republicans in charge of of the legislative race, because mm -hmm. we could talk to Republicans, they could talk to us. I was an independent serving a Democratic governor, but people talked, they made deals, they uh, had cocktail parties together, dinners together, and I don't see that. I, yeah, I see I things, the same thing. party lines are drawn, and so we'll see if we can change that. Do you think that there are structural issues that can break up this polarization, structural issues being ranked choice voting? I, I have not thought about that. I, they're doing it in Alaska now, and I haven't thought about doing that in, in uh, Montana, but I'd be open to, to looking at it. Um, right now, I just I want to prove to the state that you don't have to be fiercely partisan and, and uh, to get things done. And so that's, that's the way I'm looking at it now. Um, we're going to go right down the middle and keep trying to take votes from both parties, and I think I can win the ever-increasing independent voter because mm. uh, there are a hell of a lot of them. Now, give me your feedback on this, Gary. Um, you brought up that we're going to get into your campaign issues. You brought up that the Ukrainian war was a uh, core position of value of yours. I don't hear that from most of my constituents. Uh, 
Ukraine, Russia is completely taking a backseat to inflation. Uh, I agree. I mean, I filed March 15th and inflation has dramatically increased since then. If I went out today, uh, instead of two or three months ago, I think inflation would be the number one concern. Um, I happen to uh, think that the chairman of the Federal Reserve is the adult in the room uh, in terms of spending, because we've got to cut back spending. Um, I, I against build back better, not because there might be some components I like, but we do not need to overstimulate the economy with government money at this stage. And I think Democrats and Republicans have figured out that we have too much stimulus in the economy. And that's leading to uh, a three quarters point increase in the Fed last week. I'm sh it's almost for sure we're gonna do another three quarters. So we could get to uh, three or four on the Fed funds rate from near zero the start of the year fairly quickly. I think inflation is the number one concern right now. And I'm glad you not corrected me, but challenged me on that. Well, you as a bond guy, I mean, this is right up your alley <laughs> and, and me being in real estate while I don't while I don't, uh, I'm professionally not involved in commercial, I dabble in commercial. So when we have uh, spreads on your cap rate, yeah. if I want to buy multifamily housing, I want a four point spread on the 10 year yeah. treasury. Yeah. And if inflation is jacking that 10 year treasury, if it's going to go up to 8%, I need a, I need a 12 cap on multifamily that's going to devalue whoever's owning that. It's very hard for you to do it. Yes. I think uh, when I bought my first house, second house, I guess, in uh, 1985, when I came back to the business after being the first commerce director, I, my mortgage rate was 12 and a half. Uh, and as the 80s, and we know what happened in the early 80s to real estate, the 10-year treasury is, is the most important number. Uh, it's about 315, 320 today. Uh, the mortgage rates are based on the 10-year treasury. So, and there's a spread. So the, the, the 30 year mortgage right now, what, 630? It's, it's already getting up there, yes. Yeah. I, think, I think that is going to slow down uh, residential housing, that in price and supply. And slow you, down, I think, it, I think it took residential out of the knees. Do you, is that what you're hearing? I, Absolutely, yeah. I think the buyers have dried up and I think the rug got pulled out from everyone and we're still airborne, we're still suspended. They don't realize that we're falling yet. No, it's serious. And I, yes. I, on the ranch side, same thing. You're seeing some correlation. Oh. Well, yeah, and it's, it's interesting because as we all know, most purchases are cash and it has been that way for a long time. But nonetheless, um, overall economic factors, yeah. interest rates being one of them, uh, definitely have an effect. I mean, it just, it just, cool, yeah, it just cools things. Well, the cash market, if it's, at least in terms of luxury real estate, it, like uh, Yellowstone Club or very expensive real estate is more uh, impacted by the stock market. Yeah. And we've had, we've not only had higher interest rates, but we've had a, we've run into the first bear market in a while. We had one in March 20 of 220, and, but we recovered so quickly. I think we will recover. I, I'm not gonna give stock advice, but I'm not selling any equity here, but I'm not, uh, I'm not actively buying, I'm being very careful. On bonds, I think bond rates are going up. Well, there's an interesting number. On the 10-year treasury, if it goes up 1%, it devalues your, uh, if you bought a 10-year uh, treasury, safest security in the world, you have to hold it 10 years. 
Uh, if you bought it at 1% and then the 10-year went to 2%, you have an immediate 90% devaluation of the market value of your security. So you got you to marry, if you buy a bond, you better marry it. Because if, if you have to sell it early in a market like this, you could take you know, big losses, almost like stock market losses on, on some of the safest securities in the world. Mm. I'm optimistic that, uh, I, I, I'm hoping that Congress will back off stimulus. They had to do it. Uh, Powell and, you know, Bernanke and, uh, and Powell started together. But I, I, I think the Fed has to do what they're going to do. The question that everyone has is, are, are we going to be driven into a recession before we bring the Fed back? You know, the Fed's in charge of full employment and, and 2% inflation. Well, we certainly have the employment. Part of the inflation is wage inflation. But we're nowhere near the 2% marker that the, that the Fed has. Uh, we're gonna, I think we're going to probably go up most of the rest of the summer. And then we'll see. I mean, they're, what they're trying to do is to slow down uh, the uh, inflation. I think, Colter, you just mentioned it, the kind of impact it's having on residential. And I think maybe commercial, do you guys know? Absolutely. Yeah, slow it down. Absolutely, yeah. commercial, is, commercial is quiet. I think a lot of the phones are not ringing. And for ranch, farm and ranch, uh, we had so many contingencies out there that were in this domino effect, it was contingent upon the sale of my property, I will buy yours. Mm -hmm. And then whoever put an offer on my property said contingent upon the sale of my property, <laughs> I will buy yours. And yeah. so we have we have these uh, derivatives, essentially, it's, mm -hmm. the, it's the new 2008 derivative. There's no tangibility to it. Uh, it's creating value that isn't really there, expectations. And they're falling apart. These contingencies are getting, um, getting released, or I guess they're getting executed. They're releasing the buy-sell agreement and deals aren't getting done. It's What's quiet. The, is it 1031? What's the... Yes, 1031. Yes. Is slowed down too? Yeah. I would well, assume that that's the yeah. whole catalyst. And this. we have an extreme constraint of supply in our market. I mean, what's on the market today is half of what we would typically expect. And the big issue is most people that buy land are a high percentage are rolling investment if they're selling to be a seller they want to buy something but no one wants to be a buyer in this, because of in capital gains yeah they can defer capital gains and yeah. you know sometimes there's new owners in the in the mix first time land owners but a lot of people who own land uh you know buy and sell but stay in land they want to is the lack of supply sounds like interest rates in the market, stock market i would maintain are influencing sales um are the is the supply still an issue or is it absolutely less of an issue? yeah absolutely i mean we're we're still at record lows well and it, it, we've been in this weird environment where uh supply is diminished and demand has been high i think it still is high i think some of these things we're talking about are chipping away at it but uh for a while there especially 2021 and our covid zone you know there was a certain desperation there was for some for some of them people were actually relocating and needed a roof, you know, so they they wanted to get out of where they were from. And Montana was perceived as a haven, both from the virus itself and financially. Now that's softened a little bit. There's still demand, but they want the right place I under had, the right conditions. I had a dozen 19 year olds uh, with Jack here and uh, come into my office because I wanted to pick their brain. They, they do not even think they're gonna be able to buy a house. 
Sure. Imagine, but they're usually not in the market, but they're, you know, they're, look, they're still freshmen and sophomores in college, but bright economics majors. And so I, I think that one of the biggest problems in Montana politically and publicly is, is housing uh, and how do people get started in housing. Yeah. And I, uh, so where do you stand on regulations? Of what? Well, uh, local regulations, state regulations, when it comes to the housing market, if we can, if we can encourage more development in our, without, how do you, how do you feel on urban sprawl too? Because now we got to talk about that. No, it's really interesting. I, um, I've been reading in your old town, Andy, uh, a lot of zoning in Bozeman. And, and, you know, contractors always complain a bit about zoning, but it's really high now. And um, I read something interesting. You may have written it, Andy, but about growing up versus out, mm -hmm. that, uh, that the demand for housing is in the lack of land and the expensive land. I, I think there has to be a pretty solid look from local governments to to not do away with all regulations. I mean, we got to deal with sanitary sewage and stuff like that. But if we're going to grow, we have to uh, we have to make sure we're not uh, forcing people out of the market that are good good people. And I so I think that's an issue. I think the lack of land is an issue. Um, interesting enough, I recently met. I, I've served on both hospital boards in Billings, so I recently met with a bunch of uh, of, uh, of doctors, and they. Uh, they were having trouble right now recruiting doctors. Uh, my son's on the Board of Regents, and he was telling me about the trouble they're having recruiting, particularly Bozeman and Missoula, recruiting recruiting professors. Hmm. Uh, at you know eighty ninety thousand a year sounds great to most. Until you try to buy a house, you try, and and so they can, yeah, they, they can't. Yeah. Um, one thing I think about hospitals, and this is an idea I'm working on. One thing hospitals and universities have is land. Uh, they've, right. they've been purchasing land for years. I think that's an ideal part for investment that could make money by the Board of Investments, which I used to chair or other places. If you have the land, I think universities and hospitals are in the best shape to build housing for young doctors, nurses, mm -hmm. and so forth. It's having the land that's so critical. Okay, I know like rural schools do that. Yeah, yeah, I know. You know, MSU in Bozeman has been rightly criticized, I think, because their their growth has been exponential. And you know, what used to be viewed as a universal asset to the town of Bozeman University, with that university growing uh, so fast, um, that's part of the housing problem that they didn't build and for their own student housing needs, and that that negatively impacted. The supply in the in the city, and I think that's a legitimate. Con well, student housing is obviously a problem, but I think we've now found that attracting talented people that can teach or or provide healthcare that's yeah. a serious problem for most of the hospitals. From what I've talked to, yeah, yeah, it's uh, it's strange times. This, these are not issues that uh, Montana had to worry about. Well, I mean, I guess we you know we did have issues of low wages for yeah. a long, long, long time, but. Uh, housing wasn't really talked about as such a big issue until yeah. recently. So with with the bond market and all this debt, Gary, you're going to be in Congress. <laughs> We've got to pay the piper for yeah. his music. Yeah, I mean, I think I think we had to do. You know, Trump and the legislature and the Senate and House did some stimulus during COVID. It was important. Um, I think we've got to reduce spending, and that's where I kind of get 
tangled up with some of the mainline Democrats. I can get tied up with Republicans and a whole bunch of other things and Democrats. And, but, but I don't think as much as some of those individual issues, I mean, we saw what happened when, when they started tangling over this massive spending just in the beginning of the Biden administration. Uh, they lost the American public. Uh, you know, they looked like a circular firing squad <laughs> and they, uh, uh, you know, they beat each other up, uh, really hurt the president, really hurt existing Congress people. But I, I, I think a debt, I think that's still important. There's a lot of, of very liberal economists that think you can, you can stimulate your way out of, of, uh, of a mess and not have the replanting of loopholes to, uh, to fill. I think, I think that 2017 tax cut, um, I wouldn't abandon it, but I think some things got, I mean, that really favored large corporations and very wealthy people. I, I haven't heard too much in Montana about how it directly helped them. But um, I think uh, that we got to cut spending and I think tax loopholes, you know, I flirt with this idea that, that was floated internationally of a, 50, a minimum 15% tax on corporations. You know, that would bring in Facebook and Apple and all these folks. and I, that doesn't seem to me to be so extreme. Uh, obviously, people are against going from zero to 15. But I think some sort of a minimum tax raise and, and uh, raise and closing loopholes, and this sounds absolutely heretical, you know, funding the IRS to where they can do their job, not, regardless of the policy, uh, there's, there's no one uh, working on audits. And, you know, they've been starved. So I think I think versus raising taxes, I think uh, closing loopholes uh, would be the best. And I'd, I'd look at some minimum taxes uh, on uh, world corporations, including some of our biggest that haven't paid taxes in 10 or 15 years. It's interesting you bring up funding the IRS because in my career, which has included a lot of estate appraisals mm -hmm. for, for farm and ranch and things like conservation easement appraisals and you know conservation easement has a, has a tax deductible component uh, charitable donation component. Uh, I'm more, I've seen more problems with incompetent, uh, IRS yep. than over, overzealous. And yep. I think that the general political, um, narrative is, you know, funding the NRS, IRS is just enabling the government to screw us, uh, further, but I've actually seen the opposite. I've seen by having low, uh, trained, low competency, I guess I'll just say at low, low competency IRS agents actually can cause more trouble. Yep. Can hurt and, um, yeah, that's the my yeah. the the most I've personally or professionally um, tangled with the uh, IRS has been in, on the level of incompetence. I'm not going to make the fundamental part of my candidacy. Fund the IRS. More money for the IRS. I can imagine the trouble I get into. <laughs> but I, I do point out to the fact that, and you just said it, that that lack of, and you mentioned competent, which is extremely important slows business down well and yeah. uh you know coulter brought up regulation i i, I wish there was more con conversation around competent regulation yeah. or or uh appropriate regulation because some is needed but too much obviously is a problem but it basically and it goes back to the polarization you know man you're either for or against you're either yeah. wanting to take it out of the knees or or fund it more or whatever but there's very you know we, I, I think the more skilled and competent are zoning and planning operations were, and some are obviously more competent than others, but I, I think we uh, really need competent people on us because that is slowing growth as well. And so as a, as a bond guy, if I'm a corporation that can't pay my bonds, I'm gonna get a lower rating, correct? Yeah. 
So as a nation, austerity measures from the Republicans, that's not popular. Raising taxes from Democrats, that's not popular. We're, we're gonna keep uh, keep up this up of just spend, spend, and yep. borrow, borrow, borrow. Yep. What happens to the US as basically the central bank, the world currency, when we can't meet our debt obligations? I'd be very serious. And I, I think we've gotta have both parties, instead of polarizing, look at some common sense reforms. It's interesting, I chaired the banking board, you mentioned that, Andy, back in the early 80s. And we, for four or five years, were able to not close banks because it was that serious. We did lose some banks, but we always worked on uh, the typical way to save banks is to restructure their debt. I mean, to me, a loan's a loan, a bond's a bond, and debt's a debt. Uh, you know, I'm against, for example, this is going to show the true bond guy. I'm against for student loan. I'm against for student loan forgiveness. Uh, I think that'd be a horrible way to teach uh, people. Uh, moral hazard. Yeah, I think it is a moral hazard. And uh, but and so I've talked to some student loan folks about what we have to do with banks back in the '80s. Banks are much stronger now financially. They have too much cash, uh, and that, from a regulatory standpoint, doesn't uh, uh, say much. But it's a problem right now that uh, the accumulation of cash at the banks and the inability to get money out. Um, so I, I think debt's a real serious problem and some of the things that we talked about that are not popular are the only way to start working on debt. So what do you do if a client of yours that happens to be farm and ranch, uh, maybe they come into some money or whatnot and they come to you and say, Gary, am I, am I putting this in the equities market? Am I buying more land? Am I? <laughs> well, <laughs> personally, my own personal track record is I've always had uh, part of a well-balanced portfolio is owning land and real estate. And yeah, you know, there are days you think you have too much real estate until the last couple months in the stock market, then you're saying, maybe I have too much equity. That, that by the way, those are problems that have existed for the 45 years that I've been doing it. Yeah. But I, uh, I think that, you know, I have, when people say they're gonna, they wanna buy a ranch, we have had several, even recently, they want to buy our ranch. We, we work to try to get it done. And in some cases, that means selling a big portion of their investments with us. Right. You know, the, the professionals like the cattle and, and grain people and, and the, the agriculture people are really pretty good at assessing risk. You know, when I talk about they, risk- They live, eat, and breathe yeah, on a daily basis. When I talk to risk about some folks, they, you know, I got to really pound it in them. And then Not I, those talk, guys. <laughs> yeah, I talk about risk to, to farmers and ranchers and, you know, they have more risk every month yeah. than a typical bond market investor. And I'm seeing ag people stressed right now. And, yeah, it's been a rough. You know, fortunately, if we can, in a portfolio that we work, including their land, their farms, uh, we, can, we try to balance it and have, the critical thing in investing is to have enough cash to do what you need to do two years out. So if you're getting close to retiring, I should have retired, I suppose, but I never <laughs> will. If you get close to retirement, we've always said you have to have two years worth of income mm. to support your retirement. Same thing with ranching and farming. If someone's aggressive, and if they're aggressive, they usually know more than I do about buying uh, farm and ranch land. But the object would be to keep enough liquidity in our side of the world so that you can make good decisions. Because we all know that you can buy land when it's in trouble. 
Right, right. Well, we have some guests here from Texas, Gary, for you to interview about the Texas residential market. Oh, good. really? Ladies, come on in and introduce yourself. We have a future congressman here. Hi, how are you? Kim Gary really Buchanan. Hi, nice how are you? Nice to meet you. Iris Austin. Hi. Here, grab a seat here. I'll pull up another one. Anything can happen here. Anything well, this is kind of fun. Are you visiting? Or? Yeah. yeah. Anything can happen on Ranch Gary's podcast. You two are going to go on. Oh, you did? Yeah. Jump on this mic here. Well, you came to the right place except me. <laughs> so Gary was asking about the residential market. Have buyers been drying up? She no. doesn't have this problem. I Maybe. see it more on the below 500,000. Are you talking Texas? Mm -hmm. Okay. Not Montana. No. Texas. And, and what's the reason? The higher interest rates, uh, you know, just make for a bigger payment and the smaller families just see the potential in renting. They're not going to keep a job for two to three years, more than likely. Is, is the rental rates, is that escalating to where people are feeling like they, that's not an option? I don't think that rental rates are going to go through the roof. I think that's a fair thing to say, but I, I think that a lot of people want to rent because they don't really want to invest and buy and be locked in and something they can't afford if they do lose their jobs. Gary's an investment advisor. Well, I, for years, I've seen many instances where renting makes more sense mm -hmm. than owning. Is it more so now? Because you said rents are going to go through the roof, but, um, have they have they gone through the roof enough to slow even the possibility for renters to rent? Uh, I it, I think if I was an investment person right now, I'd be looking at a lot of houses to throw to have rental income. So build build to rent. <laughs> you'd, be, you'd be buying you'd be buying buying, or buying single family homes. I think so. I think anything that you could rent out is a very good investment right now. Well, you mentioned. Uh, it's Blackstone. Blackstone. Uh, Blackstone is literally, particularly around Georgia, I'm sure Texas. Where in Texas are you from? North Texas, an hour north of Dallas. Okay, and I, and I bet in the Dallas area, but Blackstone, starting several months ago, started buying homes. Hell, they own blocks, whole blocks of businesses. And that's turned into a uh, uh, an investment. Interesting enough, some of these folks that bought a lot of houses are now, of course, selling them. <laughs> mm. Because you remember, most of us in, in the liquid investment part of the world, uh, you, we, we think long term and say long term. But if you bought ten houses at two hundred thousand and they're now at four fifty, and you got a long term gain, some of these com some of these companies are now taking gains on the uh, on the real estate they bought. But corporate purchase of of personal residential real estate, I think is an all-time high. I think so too. Yeah. I've so, seen that. Gary, you canvassed a bunch of uh, Gen Zers and you asked them about about the future <laughs> outlook for, for home ownership and that what participation do you expect for Gen Zers in this next election? For young people? Yeah. Well, we can call them young people. Well, whatever. I mean, <laughs> you know, I better, figure, I better figure it out because it was people who I'm 73, people my age, Pretty much, I mean, you're not near as old as me, Andy, but people closer to my age put us on the ballot. And one of the reasons I fired Jack, uh, he's a freshman of uh, Wait, Harvard. Wait, you fired or hired Jack? What's the story? <laughs> I, I hired him, you know, he's a freshman at Harvard studying economics and government, 
but he's the one that brought all these kids in to see me. I think I call them kids. They can all vote. But uh, my campaign is very weak with young people. And we're, you know, I found out the other night we asked all well, 12 of them. If, I was kind of proud of one of the TV ads I had on, on MTN. And I said, uh, did they say, what's a TV? That's exactly what they said. <laughs> they said, we don't watch TV, period. But they were very well informed. And they're very well informed from social media. And so fortunately, I'm bringing some young people on. But I think I, I think housing is continually comes up in Montana. Now, Texas, I think, is faster. We're faster growing, but I think you're maybe the fastest growing state in the country. I mean, you guys are so, I think you are. Yeah. And what was Gen Z's participation in the housing market over the last young two people. years? Young people. Yeah. <laughs> well, they probably know what Gen Z is. Right? Yes. <laughs> help a lot of young people buy homes. I think that, um, you know, they want an investment. They want to have skin in the game. So they're investing beyond crypto? Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> have you had any sales where crypto is part of the down payment? No. <laughs> Good. <laughs> Good. Uh-oh, Gary. Uh -oh. So of the Warren Buffett school. Uh-oh, now, now you as a now, member of Congress, you just put yourself in a position. What, what's the SEC going to do about crypto? I think that they failed to regulate it. And I think, I think you know, I won't, and God, I'm probably going to tee off some of your listeners, I'm sure. But um, <laughs> I, I don't think crypto has any inherent value, period. And we have a rule at Buchanan Capital is that if someone wants, it's usually a, a mother and their son, or a mother and her daughter, and the daughter or the son wants their mother to buy crypto. <laughs> you know, they'll be 75, 80 years You old. take on the risk. It's yeah. your money. <laughs> but we won't sell it. We won't sell it. It's just because I don't believe it. Uh, and, uh, but I, I think some of it's here to say, stay. But I was curious because I understand that it's being used as down payments on boats and houses. You haven't seen it. You guys haven't seen it either. No, I mean you hear whisperings about it, and you're and you're, and you're asked about it, but uh, I don't know of any transactions that crypto. Has. I think I think Puerto Rico, uh, they had someone needs to fact check. Maybe we need a producer here. We need a We need an on-site fact check. We we've needed that for a long time, Coulter. Yes, the governor of Puerto Rico, uh, he was encouraging all this wealth created through crypto. Uh, that if you bought a home in Puerto Rico using crypto. When you went to sell it, you'd have zero taxes. Yeah, I've, taxes. I've heard this too. It's that the president is leading Puerto Rico, making the gamble. It's kind of what it is. Um, they're going to be well. If if crypto works out, it's going to be good for Puerto Rico based on what they're doing. But if well, it doesn't, I'm not going to buy their, their If it doesn't, uh, so it's it's controversial there. But they are. It's divided, you know, uh, sentiment there. But they are. The, at least led by the president, current president trying to bet on crypto and and it might might put them at the top of the game. If I it, bet you it doesn't. I, um, <laughs> uh, you got to remember that, that Puerto Rico has the worst municipal bonds in the market. They they went bankrupt. They restructured. They failed. And so if, and I haven't read this, but uh, if Puerto Rico wants to balance their future on crypto. Let them do it. Just don't do it in Montana. Yeah. Well, as a as a protector, that's going to come across your table when you're in D.C. So, <laughs> when we have to bail out Puerto Rico because they are a U.S. protectorate, how is Gary going to vote for that bailout plus California's bailout and Detroit's bailout? Well, we'll see about California. California has the, the biggest surplus on record right now, and that's there. 
a crazy position of uh, that governor. And a lot of it's stimulus and COVID again and the money, the free money that came out of the skies. But no, I think it's an issue. And I, you know, the other thing is that a congressman has is a chance to work on antitrust. And I know you have a lot of ag uh, listeners. Uh, as a congressman, you have the ability. And I, uh, Jack and I actually met with some folks that are from Washington that are working on meatpacking issues. And so I, I think antitrust legislation, I mean, four companies control 75% of the meat and four companies control 90% of the grain. I kind of like what John Tester's doing. He started on this, but a congressman, you don't, you don't know what you have in front of you. I do know one thing, I'll have the smallest office. Uh, the, the, the freshman- rep They find a closet for you? Yeah, no, the freshman <laughs> Republican and the freshman Democrat. Uh, always get the worst offices. So <laughs> if I, for some strange reason, win, I'll be working out of a broom closet. But to, to answer your, your question, antitrust is something that's very complicated, very well known in my world of investments. And I think uh, working on, uh, it's not a monopoly, uh, but that four companies can rule those sectors is something that is a federal issue. Well, if that message, um Antitrust, Packers and Stockyards Act, that will definitely resonate well with Texas and Montana. Yeah. So your elect your your constituents in Montana. Does that antitrust extend to the big tech companies? Do we need to rein them in somehow? You no, know, I'm not used to capitalism in there. I mean, I say one thing about antitrust, and then I'd like to maintain them a capitalist in spite of that, and they are contradictory. Uh, I, I'm I think Republicans and Democrats are looking at. Uh, some regulation in, the, in, the, in that big tech area. And I think big tech is is going to be ready for it. I mean, I think they know it's coming. Um, I don't, I'd have to look at individual bills, but I, I know that some of that is coming. And I think part of it is abuse politically. You know, that both, you know, the people have abused those, their role with those companies on a political basis. And we talked, we kind of hit on this earlier. I mean, doesn't even pure capitalism Require somewhat of a framework of regulation on a minimal level? Yeah, I mean, all you have to do is remember 08 and 09 and 10 and 01 and 02 uh, to remember the, the lack of regulatory uh, influence. I mean, I, I go back to the, to the uh, reset, not the recession, the depression, and the, having been a bank of, uh, chairman. You were what in your thirties or forties? No, I didn't go to hell. But I think I think that kind of regulation, in general, is important because it usually uh, protects those of us that are, you know, living in Montana and, and dealing with a good bank system. I think I think the Montana bank system is financially as strong as as I've seen in a while. And it hasn't been that way forever. So. Mm. Ladies, how do you feel about regulation? I mean, you're from Texas. Texas is the standard when it comes to laissez-faire, capitalism, free markets, individualism. If you want your money in a safe place, Switzerland and Texas. I don't know about Switzerland. <laughs> I'm just gonna say that. <laughs> Any thoughts for Gary here? Coming from, or just, you live there, you know it, you love it. My mom's a baker. <laughs> I can't say much. We, I mean, I feel like it's, I mean, safe. I mean, it's a safe bet. Has the six and a half approximately mortgage, 30 year mortgage rate slowed you down? Yeah. A tad, yeah. Mm -hmm. I think 
so I think we're going to see it raised a lot more and yeah. I think that's going to come to a halt it's just it's still trickling water it's just yeah. it's not turned off it, it's interesting the variable rates now are making a big comeback you know for, for the last five or ten years we had such low rates you'd be crazy not to lock in a rate mm -hmm. but now it's at six and a half and you know, I, I hope people understand that that can work, but how dangerous that can be. Isn't that you know. uh, nutty to do a variable rate now? Because it's isn't it pretty evident that it's still the only direction is up for a good while here yet? You looking at the guy who has a variable rate <laughs> on his commercial building? <laughs> I, I think it all depends if you can handle it. If you got the liquidity and you think you're maybe going to uh, not flip a house, but you might only be in it one or two years. There are variable rate structures that make sense, but that's what happened in 08 and 09, and among other things that people never understood uh, in, in that, uh, post-1984 when Montana real estate just bid it. And then people got into variable rates and didn't understand the consequences of a rapid uh, increase in inflation. So. We've been asking you national questions, but the these Texans here, they don't get you elected. It's Montanans. <laughs> what are the issues? And I'm, I'm sitting here, Gary, having the hardest time putting my finger on you as a Democrat or a Republican. Like, uh, does he lean liberal or conservative? I just, I haven't well, got you. The fact that you're having trouble makes my day. <laughs> I haven't got you figured out yet. No, I would say that I'm, <laughs> on, on fiscal things, I'm very conservative, almost hard right. I mean, I've already said I'm, I'm against uh, student loan, doing away with student loans. I believe bonds are bonds, debts are debt. Uh, on some issues, and I'm very, I'm almost Cold War oriented on, on internationally. And I think people have, for, what I mean by that, for those of you who are too young, is that, <laughs> you know, uh, years ago, Congress, uh, Russia was our obvious enemy, our, our worst enemy. It is now again. And we, you know, we've got to have a strong and very much for for increasing money to NATO. That's contradictory to some people, but I think we need a hard defense in Europe, and uh, we got to win that war. So I pull conservative. What used to be conservative, by the way, um, maybe not now. Uh, and I like it when the Democrats say I'm stealing from Democrat votes, and the Republicans stay I say I steal from them. So what you just said is. I'm your guy. Well, tell me if I'm wrong, Gary, because <laughs> I've I've character characterized you to people I've talked to is on a very general basis, fiscally conservative and uh, perhaps uh, socially progressive. Yeah, I, I think moderate. I mean, moderate. Some things okay. I don't, you know, I, I uh, there's, you know, I'm not. I'd, I think that if there still was a conservative Democratic Party, and I don't see it. With a few exceptions, Tester is one, by the way. I think it's one of the reasons he's, he's so popular. Uh, but the current Democratic Party is scares the hell out of me in Washington, not in Montana. Hmm. So. so now we have 10 minutes left, and I guess I need to narrow this down. I went from, we talked about <laughs> national issues to Montana issues, but you don't even have to win Montana. You have to win the Eastern District. Yeah. So what, what Which are kind of, the, by the way, for people that may not know, is a very conservative. Yeah. Libertarian. Yeah, conservative libertarian. Minus the um, marijuana. Well, no, <laughs> you know, you, you've, you've mentioned this a couple of times that you've been criticized or people have expressed fears of you robbing from the Democrat, robbing mm -hmm. from uh, the Republican. And I've had a number of conversations with friends who are Democrats and I bring up your campaign and they say, oh, you know, he's he's going to rob from Penny, who's the who's the Democratic uh, 
And then my next comment is, yeah, but she can't win. And they said, and they say, yeah, I know. <laughs> and then I try to create, I try to help you out with that opening and say, well, what about an independent? I'm working very hard to be nice um, about, about that subject, but here's the bottom line. It's probably why a Democrat couldn't win or would have, in this district, which by the way, uh, 41 counties. Um, you know, Texas is bigger in every way than, than Montana. But well, this, this district we're talking about, I'm just pulling on this off the top of my head, but I'm guessing it might be like the eighth biggest state or the 10th biggest state. District, man. I mean, the district that yeah. you're running in is bigger yeah. than most states by a long You know, Montana mile. is so damn interesting. Because we we're the fourth biggest state otherwise. Right. We have 56 counties, 127 cities, 500 school districts. I mean, if you want to get involved in Montana, they're probably the best place in the country to get involved in something. And, uh, but I think, I think the ag votes, I, 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 there's 41 counties. Um, I think I have enough background to appeal to uh, a good part of agriculture. Um, I gotta learn more. I've got some prominent ag people saying they're gonna get in front of uh, me and try to tell and give me ideas. And some of them dramatically oppose each other. Yeah. NCBA and RCAF. Yeah, farm, you know, Farmers Union versus Farm Bureau, Cattle. And, you know, I know people in all of those. Um, I don't think I'm going to get uh, a majority of the real hard right. And I don't, I don't think I'm going to get a majority of the real hard Democrat. But as I went door to door, talked to a thousand people, I just found out how sick of party politics, uh, of people beating up on each other. You say you have that going in Texas as well. Can that... Can that be a leading campaign issue? Is that uh, tired of the division, the strife? Yeah, that is, is the lead. Okay. Although, like you said, I, you brought up inflation. I should start with inflation because that's the, <laughs> there you go. Because people are picking, you know, filling a gas. The tank. hook. Yeah, that's so. Inflation is the number one issue. Uh, I think national defense is probably down there a little bit. It's really important to me. Uh, but no, it's it's incredibly divided. I've been very critical of the last legislature. Um, not that this was Republican control, I'm saying the legislature, and I'm not running against them. But I, I visited young doctors from Colorado that were thinking of moving to Montana, but the way the attack on health care has been from our elected officials, uh, we had a, a, a local senator who will go unnamed, who went to, a, our, met a bunch of young doctors at a hospital, and he accused them of falsifying death certificates to raise revenue for their for the hospital. And then went on to say that kale, K-A-L-E, is better than any therapeutic <laughs> or vaccine. And, you know, the, the hospitals have had- Yeah, we've got some winners in our- uh... the, the hospitals have had to triple their security costs <clears throat> because of violence. Um, I just worked with all sorts of, not like 41, but all sorts of electoral counters locally because we had to get signatures from across the state. Those people are hardworking, honest people. And they some of them feel like their lives are being threatened because people, you know, believe some of this stuff. Uh, and then educators, I think, in the same way. So we have to we have to, whether you're Republican or Democrat, quit attacking people that do an honest job. And I hear that and I'm I'm making that part of my campaign. Listen, you know, we get along as people when our politicians just tear us apart and lead us down dead end roads. And so your answer is that's very much, I may have talked too much about my response, but that's exactly what I'm trying to get at. Well, I like the term you coined, the eight lane freeway down the center. Yeah. That's a, a wide open, yeah. a, a, a large swath. Yeah. And I, I agree with that. I think that's true in our political 
scenario right now that the middle I, I, I've already shared you know I'm a, I'm a proud independent and that feels a, has felt a bit lonelier over the course of the last couple of years we got um, lots of new friends yeah because so, they're out there yeah well as <laughs> closeted we, we're, we're, we're I'm a clo- <laughs> closet independent you're just quieter the radical parties. middle <laughs> well as we wrap this up uh, we have listeners across the nation Gary and I I, I hope that they tune into your campaign in the election and they follow your results because what I've heard from you is that your your results are gonna be a good test, good judgment of where the nation stands on this political division, the polarization. Uh, if your message is receptive, more people are gonna to wanna to see a third party, see an independent, see some something happen between Republicans and Democrats and that they're tired of the strife. So we're gonna use you as the litmus test. All right, fair enough. Thanks for the chance. Thanks, thanks a lot for get, coming in, Gary. We'll be we'll be sure to have you back once you're in Washington to get an inside <laughs> scoop. Uh, by the way, you know Coulter's kind of interested in uh, Department of Agriculture. I'm I'm kind of great to <laughs> already picking out our cabinet positions. Yeah, yeah, or? that's why we were really happy. Here, we're kind of angling for uh, boards, yeah, commissions, yeah, yeah. <laughs> You must not have read my post on Facebook today. Andy. I did read your post on Facebook today, actually. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> so now you're trying to drag me into it. <laughs> okay. Well, All thanks right. a lot, Gary. It's, you, uh, you know, like you said, it took a while for us to get our schedules aligned, but really thanks for coming in and good luck on your campaign. Thanks and, for having me. That was yeah. a fun hour. Uh, I told you it would be. We'd yeah. have a good time. Thanks a lot. You bet. See Thank you. As a real estate and finance professional, we know that you want to be a top producer and high performer. In order to do that, you need to grow your portfolio, grow your influence. The problem is rural real estate is a private and closed-off network that is very difficult to enter and gain acceptance within. It's a nuanced segment that requires years of experience. This may make you feel frustrated or even scared given the high costs of getting established. We get it. But in the age of information, We believe you already have inexpensive access to knowledge and resources that would improve your competency. We understand that you feel as though you don't have time for continuing education or that you'll worry that you're wasting your time on redundant and obsolete information. For this reason, we feature only the best accredited and established rural real estate professionals who analyze, transact, and manage billions of dollars annually no newbies here. Your goal is to efficiently improve your business and be viewed as a trusted advisor. So here's how we can do that together. 1. Starting right now, make a simple commitment to self-improvement. 2. Be sure to make it easy, convenient, and attainable. Rigidity rarely works in the long run for transformation. 3. Make your structure of self-improvement entertaining and engaging. If it's fun and intriguing, you'll have a better shot at making it last. With that in mind, click subscribe on your streaming platform so you know when the latest episode has dropped. Then go to ranchinvestor.com podcast and subscribe to our monthly newsletter. We also have a private Facebook group simply called Ranch Investor. And this is where we can best interact with you by answering your questions and taking your recommendations. Most exciting, though, is being able to follow us on YouTube by clicking the subscribe button. In the meantime, keep a notepad and pen handy 
you'll undoubtedly be thinking of clients and peers in mind as you listen. Go ahead and text or email them a link to this episode for your constant contact, CRM, and your goals of being a center of influence, the expert in your field. Stick with it, and soon you'll stop waiting for the phone to ring with new business. Be the source of knowledge and the maven that other professionals are excited to refer.